This morning, we're going to start off by reading from the last few words of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 22. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, or you can just listen along. It says this, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's sons. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then, Jason, jo then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. As Joseph, the savior, the savior of Egypt, the savior of his family, the savior of the known world, reached the end of his days, he left his brothers with a few last words. He said, I'm about to die. I'm about to leave. I'm moving on. Those can be difficult words to hear, can't they? That is, unless, of course, it signals that one of the two brothers that you have shared a room with since forever is finally going to be moving out. And especially if it's the brother who has reminded you just about every night how wonderful it is to have a girlfriend, and boy, isn't it a shame that you don't have one. Let me tell you, when he decided to move out of the house, no tears were shed. That was, that was uh, a great day. I wasn't asking, oh no, what am I going to do now? I was thinking, how can I get rid of the other one? And then there were two, right? But in this case, in Joseph's case, in the case of his brothers, when you're faced with the reality of the passing of a loved one, that's a difficult thing. Those are disconcerting words. I'm about to die. I'm leaving you. This is where our paths part. My time has come to an end, and you're going to have to make it from here on your own. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're in that moment where uh, you're, you're just about to let go of a loved one. Or, or, or something that has, has brought comfort to your life, brought a sense of normalcy, that is being taken away. Maybe it was a person. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's this whole way of life that is being taken away by a random pandemic that just dropped out of the sky. I don't know what it is, but there are moments in life that leave us asking, what now? Where, where do I go from here? How am I going to make it now that the, the, the one or the thing that I've relied so heavily upon, it's not going to be here anymore? And how am I going to adapt to this new normal? Are you feeling that? I'm sure that Joseph's brothers were asking that when his eyes closed for the last time. It's the same thing his brothers were essentially asking when their father passed away years before. At the end of chapter 49, Jacob gives some final instructions about where they are to bury him. And then verse 33 says, 
when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and were gathered to his people. That puts into motion an extravagant preparation for his burial. There's mourning. There's, a, there's an entourage that's put together. There's a long journey back to Canaan. And there they bury him in Canaan with his father and grandfather. But then they return back to Egypt. Then they return back to the land of Goshen on the outskirts of Egypt. And Genesis 50 verse 15 says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You see, even after all the terrible things that they had done to their brother, Joseph, well, he had been good to them. For 17 years, he had provided for them. He protected them. He, he had peace with them in the land of Egypt. But now that their father was gone, they asked, what now? What is Joseph going to do now that dad is gone? Clearly, he had a special relationship with dad ever since he was little. They had some type of bond and and. And, and maybe, just maybe, the only reason that he's been nice to us when we came down to Egypt, the only reason he's been nice to us is because he didn't want to upset dad. Maybe this was his way of just making it uh, dad's last few days on this earth peaceful ones. Maybe he did it just for dad. And maybe really he didn't forgive us at all. And now that, he, that dad's gone... Maybe now is the time when Joseph finally gets his revenge. What now? Let's fast forward to another what now moment. His eyes, wide eyes, gaping mouths, looked heavenward to a Mediterranean sky. No doubt that same question was fresh on their minds. They left everything to follow this man from Nazareth. Three years went by. And they went from hopeful anticipation and expectation to agonizing sorrow and loss. But then, <laughs> unbelievable surprise! He's alive again! And what joy came because of that! But there he goes. We see him. I, I think I still see. No, no, he's gone. What now? What, what now? I thought things were going to be so different. What now? Abandonment? We carry out that mission he was talking about? We're, we're going it on our own now? And we're waiting. Waiting, waiting for what? Waiting for, for, for this helper he was talking about? Waiting for our master's return? What now? Fast forward another 2,000 or so years, and that's where we find ourselves, don't we? What now? If you've placed your trust in Christ, you've been adopted into God's family, and you find yourself a part of his big plan. And the promise that goes all the way back to the very beginning. And if that's you, then you're waiting. 
You're waiting. What are you waiting for? We are waiting for what Paul talked about in Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're waiting. You know what you're waiting for? You're waiting for the return of the King. You're waiting for the day when He will return and gather up His people, where He'll pull us out of this weary world and He'll call us home, call us to the place that He's prepared for us, a place where, where tears are wiped away, where sorrow and suffering are no more, and we will dwell in paradise with our Maker and our Savior for all eternity. We're waiting, though. You're waiting. Waiting isn't easy. Especially when as you wait, things are not getting easier. Life is not getting easier. In fact, life is getting harder and harder, isn't it? And maybe darker and darker. You're waiting. Isn't that what life feels like right now? It's the same way it was for the children of Israel back in Egypt. Just before Joseph died, he told his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to a land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, there was hope. There's hope. Just like Christians today, there was a future to look forward to. The promise that was made to Abraham, well, that promise still stood. Burying Jacob in the promised land and even Joseph saying, I want you to take my bones and bury them there. Well, that was an indicator that the promise, you can be confident in that promise. There's still coming a day when God is going to return. He's going to visit you and he's going to bring you back to this land and we're all going to be together there. But you know, if, if you've read ahead, maybe you've, maybe you've been to Sunday school. You read ahead and you know that the wait for these Israelites is going to be long. And it's going to be painful. The people of Egypt, they were going to become fearful because of God's tremendous blessing that he kept pouring out on his people there. They grew in numbers and they grew strong. And the people of Egypt, they became fearful and they enslaved them. And a Pharaoh that did not know who Joseph was, he decides to do the unthinkable, and he orders all of the midwives to kill every male-born Hebrew baby. What a despicable, awful, horrific thing. As they wait for the promise, the fulfillment of the promise, sorrow, sorrow is what they experience. Laughter turns to sorrow. Rejoicing turns to groaning and crying out for help. Have your days of waiting brought you to the point of groaning? Brought you to that point of agony, crying out for help? Maybe you've reached that point of discouragement, of disillusionment. Maybe you felt the agony of the times. You found yourself asking, what now? What now? How are we going to get through this new normal? Where's God in the midst of it? One musician wrote not too long ago, where is God in the night sky? Where's God in the city light? 
Where's God in the earthquake? Where's God in the genocide? Where are you in my broken heart? Everything seems to fall apart. Everything feels rusted over. Tell me that you're there. There's some who look at the signs of the times and and how long it has been since Jesus walked the earth, and they conclude, you know what? God really isn't there. Or they figure that if he is there, then then maybe he's checked out. He's out to lunch. Or maybe our perception of God has been wrong all this time, and we don't really know who God is. Maybe he's not really good. Maybe he's not really all-loving. Or maybe he's not all-powerful like we thought him to be. Because if he would, then if he was, then how could he possibly allow all of this painful stuff we're experiencing in life? I'd like to take the next few minutes to take us back to who God is and how he works so that we might be fortified and strengthened as we continue to wait for the hope that has been promised. Perhaps one of the most important things that we've learned in our study of Genesis is that in the waiting, God is working. You'll remember that God gave Joseph a couple dreams back in chapter 37. From those dreams, he was pretty confident that the day was coming when his family was all going to bow down to him. And that, in conjunction with his father's favoritism, that spurred jealousy inside his, his brothers. Even hatred in his brothers. And it led them to do a terrible thing. They threw him in a pit. They planned to kill him. There's no doubt In my mind, that in those dark depths of that pit that Joseph asked, what What now? What now? Verse 26 says, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And from there, it goes from bad to worse. Not only was he shackled and paraded down to Egypt, but he stripped, put up on that auction block, and sold to an Egyptian official. Somehow throughout all of this, he remains faithful to God, obedient to God. But then, not long after, he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. Can things possibly get any worse? God blesses him. God is with him. He gives him some responsibility, some respect. Then comes the moment where he interprets the cupbearer's dream. And all of a sudden, he's thinking, maybe now is the time. Maybe God is going to restore me. But no, three years, three long years pass by after that. You know, the actions of his brothers brought about terrible and long-lasting effects, didn't they? Long-lasting effects on Joseph's life. It was a great evil that was done to him. There's no denying that. His brothers knew it. They also knew that now, now he's prime minister of Egypt. What now? 
now he could return the favor. This isn't good. He's completely within his right, and it's within his power to take out his vengeance on us. And that's why after their father died, they came to him and they begged for mercy. Look at what they send a messenger. They weren't even brave enough to come talk to him on their own. They send a messenger to him to say to Joseph, Genesis 50, verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph, it says, wept. Wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, to their credit, right, they don't try to pass the blame. Nor do they try to minimize it, saying, uh, you know, this, this was a mistake. This was some momentary lapse in our judgment. No, they didn't do any, any of that. They own it. They call it transgression. They call it sin. They call it evil. And Joseph could have said, you know, you're right. You're right. Dad's dead. Now is the time for me to finally get back at you. But he doesn't do that, does he? Genesis 50, 19, he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You see, Joseph had a deep-rooted belief that God was the one who punishes wrong. The vengeance, that's, that's for him to deal with, not me, Joseph believed. If there's any punishing that was going to be done, God was going to be the one that was going to do it. But you know, it wasn't that belief that got him through all of those difficult years. It wasn't that belief. Instead, it's in what he says next that I believe is the source of what, uh, what allowed him to patiently, faithfully, and obediently walk through that long what-now season of life. He says in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, it's very important that we track the wording here so that we don't misinterpret what Joseph is saying and what the Bible is teaching about how God works in the world. Notice, Joseph said, you meant evil against me, in other words, your intention was to do evil. You meant me harm. It wasn't that you wanted to do something good for me and it backfired. You didn't, you didn't buy me a puppy and then all of a sudden it turned around and bit me in the leg. No, no, no. You intended to do me harm. Not only did they do him harm, but they meant to do him harm. The motives of their hearts were evil. They were self-serving. They were fueled by jealousy. They were fueled by hatred. They did wrong, and they were fully responsible for the wrong that they did. And Joseph recognized that evil was what he was experiencing from his brothers. There was no excusing it away. Same is true for you and I. If wrongs have been done to you, they're wrong. They're, they're, they're evil. The terrible things we experience in life are, are, are a result of evil in our world. Genesis 3 introduces us to that reality. People decided to do what was right in their own eyes, and it just so happens that any right that isn't in line with 
God's right and what he designed, well, that's not right at all. It's wrong. It's wrong. Now, someone might say, okay, so people are bad. But didn't God make these people? And isn't he supposed to be in control of everything? So why, if God is in control and if he made these people, then why would he allow them to do the bad things that they do? If the Bible is saying God is who God is, then why are people allowed to do the evil things that they do? If he's this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good being, then why does he allow them to get away with it? If I had told my kid that it was wrong to pick on other children, and I had the power, and I had within my power, to prevent him from doing it, then why is he in the backyard right now pummeling your kid into the dirt? doesn't make sense. You see the problem. Where's God in all of this? As you and I walk through life and we look forward to the hope that he's promised, then why is all this bad stuff happening to us? How do you explain what happened to Joseph and he, as he waited for the fulfillment of his dreams? How do you explain what God was doing as his brothers, Joseph's brothers, handed him over to those Midianites to be sold for 20 shekels of silver? Joseph answers that question. He says, you meant evil against me. That word meant. It's hashav in Hebrew. It's the same word as the word planned. They planned. They intended evil in the actions that they performed. They meant evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now pay close attention here. The brothers meant evil. They intended calamity, God meant it. Well, what is it? What did, what, did, what did God mean? What did God intend? What did God plan? Well, that word it, in Hebrew, it's feminine. And the closest feminine antecedent in that sentence is the word evil. And so you have to connect evil and the word it. We conclude that it refers to the evil. So, you planned evil, but God planned that same evil, that same calamity, for good. So God does evil for good? Really? That doesn't sound right. Wouldn't that make God evil? Are you saying that God sins. How do you justify that with Matthew 5.48? Your heavenly Father is perfect. Doesn't the Bible say that? What about Leviticus 11.44? For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. What about that? What about 1 John 1, 5? The message. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Or what about Psalm 145, 17? The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. This just doesn't add up, right? Unless the Bible is inconsistent. Unless the Bible is inconsistent, then God can't be responsible for evil. So how does this work? Some people will try to explain this. They'll try to explain it away by just tweaking that word mean. 
rather than say God meant it, they'll say God used it. He used it. He used what Joseph's brothers did. He used it. So human beings, they make the mess. They spill the oil all over the place. And then God quickly swoops in and he cleans it all up. And not only does he clean it up, he actually recycles it into something good. They did it, but he uses it, you see. Kind of makes sense. That solves the problem, doesn't it? But you've got to be careful here. Because there's something dangerous about that. It's a dangerous road to walk down. And it's because it leads us to believe that God is not really in control at all. He doesn't really have the power to allow or to prevent anything. He can't stop people from doing what they do. Instead, he's just like a basketball player reacting to the other player's moves. He's constantly reacting, constantly adjusting, constantly trying to catch up. That's the path that saying God uses evil takes you down. It doesn't give us much hope. We find ourselves in the midst of troubled times asking, what now? And all we have to hold on to is that God might use this, might be able to turn it around into something good. You know what? That's not the kind of God I want to believe in. It's not the kind of hope that I need to make it through this difficult life, and it's not the kind of God that Joseph believed in either. God doesn't just use evil. That word meant, it doesn't mean used. It means meant. <laughs> it means that God planned, that God intended what Joseph is saying here and what the Bible teaches is that while human beings are out there intending to do uh, and actually doing all of their dirty work, at the same time, God is permitting it for his own good reasons. This is called the doctrine of concurrence. It's not that God turns or transforms evil into good. Evil is evil. It's, it is what it is. There's no changing it. There's a trend in storytelling these days to try to convince us that evil people, they don't really do evil at all. In fact, villains, they aren't really bad. They're just misunderstood. And if you only knew their backstory, well, then you would feel sorry for them. And you would realize that the things that they do, things that you perceive as evil, well, they're not really evil at all. They're just expressions of the pain that they have experienced. And this is not to minimize the pain or brokenness that people experience in life. That is tragic, that is sad, but you know what? It's a result of evil. It's a result of sin. And sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. It creates this tragic chain. But you know, the Bible doesn't lead us to believe that people aren't responsible for the evil that they do because evil has been done to them. It doesn't do that. It doesn't justify evil. And God doesn't turn evil into good. Instead, what the Bible teaches and what we learn from Genesis 50-20 is that while human beings do evil things from their evil motives of their hearts, at the same time, 
God is allowing those very things to occur from his pure, good motives and for his good purposes. It's the doctrine of concurrence. Two things are happening at once, and they're two very different things, aren't they? The Bible teaches that God is in complete control. He's completely sovereign. Isaiah 46, 9 says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. What the Bible teaches is that God governs all things, even evil. He governs. It's not a yin and yang thing here. Evil's not a struggle for God. It's not there to keep things in balance. Everything holds together. No, that's not it. Instead, God, in his limitless wisdom, has an alternate purpose for the bad things that people do. That's what Joseph's saying here. His brothers sold him to do harm. That's what they intended. They wanted to do him harm. There was evil in their hearts. But God was sending him so that the lives of many would be saved. Do you see the difference? God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So in the same action, his brothers sold, but God sent. That's what Joseph says in 45.5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. There's no evil in that. He said it again in verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You know what? Psalm 105 says the same thing. God sent. And all the pain and the suffering and the mistreatment and misery that Joseph experienced, he saw that God's hand was in it, governing it overseeing it, working out his perfect plan. And that's not the only time it happened. It happened at the cross. That same concurrence was at work. That's what the praises of the early Christians in Acts 4.27 attest to. Listen to this. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You have four players here. You have Herod, you have Pontius Pilate, you have the Gentiles, you have the people of Israel, and all of them meant to do evil. In fact, they did do evil. They gathered together against Jesus Christ. But what was happening in the midst of all of their, their evil intentions here? God was working out his good plan. He was working his good plan. Even as they carried out that evil plot born from evil intentions, they were doing just what God had planned to take place. They meant it for evil, but God meant it 
for good to bring wayward, hopeless people back to himself that they might have a hope, that they might have a future. This is how those who, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. This is how the Apostle Paul can write in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God, who's always in control, always working out his perfect plan, is for you, for me, then we don't have anything to worry about, do we? He's, he's used the greatest evil ever committed, the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ, for your greatest good. How can you think for one moment that he isn't going to be using the difficult, in fact, evil things in your life for your good and his glory? God told Israel in Jer Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. You may or may not know them. I know them, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a hope in the future. And God is working even now. And he's leading you. And he's leading myself. If, we trust, if our trust is in Jesus Christ, he's leading us through all of this through what happened yesterday and through what's going to happen today and tomorrow and who knows what 2021 is going to bring for us. He's using all of it to bring you one step closer to the fulfillment of his promise to you, to that hope, to that future that you have in Jesus Christ. He's leading you right there. My friends, that's good news. That's really good news. It's news you can stand on, isn't it? It's news that can you can rely on as you step into tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. When Joseph said he was about to die, he was about to leave his family, and they were left there waiting, waiting in Egypt, now waiting with their advocate there in Egypt, waiting for God to visit them and return them back to the, the, the land that he had promised them. They knew that they were children of the promise, but the fulfillment of that promise, it had not yet come. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here. And yet there's still some sense in which it has not yet completely come he's still coming again isn't he he said he's going to prepare a place for us and he's coming again we're still waiting for the day when he returns to call us home you and my i might be looking at our lives just like those israelites did and you might be asking what now what now where do we go what do we do how are we going to make it through this new difficult challenging season this new trial that we're faced with how are we going to survive a world that's becoming darker more hostile more difficult to live in maybe you've trusted in christ he's forgiven you adopted you into his family he's begun a new work in your life he's preparing a place for you but you're not there yet you're waiting 
for now you live in a world where Jesus himself said that you're going to have trouble. How are you and I going to make it through? We do it as God has always asked his people to do it. We do it as Joseph did it. Patiently, faithfully, obediently. We do it looking to the hope that he has promised with confidence that in the waiting, he's working. What others mean for evil, he has meant for good. Do you know that you're a part of God's program? <laughs> that you're one of his people? Do you have the hope that is beyond this world and secure in the next? If you don't, you can right now. You can confess your need, confess your sin to him, confess your inadequacy, confess that you've turned against your maker, just like I have, just like everyone else has. Admit that you're a sinner. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ, where he made up for all of your inadequacy, where he paid for every one of your sins, past, present, future. And not only did he die there, not only did he make uh, the payment for your sins so that you could be made right with God, but he rose again three days later. And because of the life that he has, you and I have the hope of Christ, of life eternal, of a transformation, of a new relationship with Christ, of a new identity. Place your trust in the cross of Christ. Be washed clean. Be forgiven. Be made new. And embrace that hope and that future. Would you do that now? Life's too short full of trouble to go through without knowing that you have an eternal hope and an eternal future. If you have placed your trust in Christ, are you reminding yourself each day, even in the strangest, most painful turns in life, that God is working out his good purposes? Let's take a moment. Let's confess our need and our reliance upon him as we wait for the hope.